You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Two hot mics, Bracken. Not three today, two. I talked to a hot mic yesterday on my run. Mike Ferguson. I talked to Mike Ferguson on... Wednesday that. as well. I had a missed call from him. I called him back on my way to the run, and he ended up talking me through the drive to the trail and four miles of twisty trail running. Just made it fly by. Catching up with Mike made me realize how much I missed that guy. He's a good conversationalist. It was nice to catch up with him. He must have made his rounds kind of like Hunter does. Like when Hunter mm-hmm. calls you, he calls me. I think we're a couple now, and everybody just thinks Bracken, they think Kirk. They think Kirk, they think Bracken. It's cute. Makes me happy. <laughs> it sure does. Then if they can only get a hold of one of us, it's like they talk to me as well. And everybody says that we are the worst at answering our phones. Like, you're so bad with your phone. You're so bad with responding. Well, my phone's on silent all the time because I'm an easily distracted human, so I have to keep it that way. And I, your excuse, I don't know what it is. I don't like people. <laughs> Pretty good excuse. <laughs> Keep me isolated somewhere. Uh, I love interacting with people. I just like, I don't know. I want to do a face-to-face. Well, well, we got two hot mics today, meaning we we don't have a guest, but this is by design here. We got something we're going to chat out today. But Bracken, I wanted to run something by you here. So I have some thoughts on this, but um, my my flat running is going very well right now. I'm fast. I have no problem saying that. But man, am I just humbled on my incline trainer and hill work lately? And it's uh it's perplexing me, kind of. It's just it's a frustrating thing of focusing on running flat and fast and it not translating to climbing. It's just not. So I'm very perplexed right now because one side of things is going well and you'd think the other would follow suit, but it's it's really not. What do you think gives, Bracken? Well, I mean, low-hanging fruit, you can't use super shoes uphill on the treadmill. They don't give you anything. If only. So I'm not saying you're all super shoe on the flat because you were getting faster before you even started down that road. And you're still (laughs) fast without them. I see you do some runs in your Clifton's, and you're fast without them. Yep. But you don't get anything uphill from the shoe. Yeah. So that's... Would you consider my endorphin pros, would they be too much of a super shoe for you? Because I'm hitting workouts in that shoe that that well beyond anything previously. For me, no. That shoe does not make me faster. It lets me stay at my pace longer. Mm. So it would make me faster in a long race over time. It would make my second half faster. Sure. But if I were to time trial a mile of 5K... Uh, I would say the the lowest distance I would feel a benefit from them is probably 10K. Hmm. And that would probably be just staying power the last 2K. But everyone's different. Anyway, mm-hmm. what I really think it is is that you put in a block of specific work on the flats and you haven't mm-hmm. put in a block of specific uphill. I know you're hitting spot uphill workouts, but mm-hmm. in order to pair the two – you know as well as I do, you got to get a block where every quality workout is done on the incline trainer in order to mesh the two. And I don't think you've done that. Yeah. You know what's interesting is when I was going through, uh, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but when I was going through like uh, detox and all that stuff in the fall and then through the winter, um, I had gotten light. 
like my body was in disarray and I lost a bunch of weight, like 10 pounds, not trying just, and now it's all back. My body's like rehit homeostasis. I'm at like 172 pounds. And I think it's just simply like, I got fast going uphill because I got lighter before. Like it was, I was running fast in the winter and I, I hate to say it, but gravity's a mother trucker, man. And I think it's, I think it's that I can, you can, um, what do you call it on flat terrain? Like running is like a, a, a controlled fall. And your weight doesn't hinder you nearly as much running on flat terrain. But my, my climbing metrics are slightly behind where they have been. Like my fitness is astronomically better than it's ever been. But my climbing metrics are just a hair behind where they've been at their best. So one of mine is at its best and one is like a hair behind. And it's like one of those mm -hmm. things where I'm trying to figure out if I want to uh, try to check that box. But guess what will happen to the other box if I do that? It's, it's just You can't have it all, I don't think. I really am not sure if you can. My guess is that if you put in two of your workouts every single week on the incline trainer and kept one flat targeted session you would maintain the vast majority of your flat stuff yeah we'll see maybe not to like marathon distance but i bet you could still crack a 5k off on Le that training. listen this is first world problems to the max what am i even doing complaining about it but i had a, a quality uphill workout on tuesday and i was like so i did 500 foot gain intervals at 30 percent and in the past, I could hold six reps at this speed I was at, and I held four. So, for example, I fell two reps short of, like, Tahoe climbing fitness, which is notable. Mm -hmm. I only made two-thirds of the total volume at a pace in which I could hold two or three years ago when I was really climbing a lot. Um, and that that's not a ton, but that may translate to minutes out on a course, right? And so things like that. What are those taking you? Five and a half, six minutes, those 500 foot reps? Give it six minutes, let's say, give or take. Yeah. Mostly give. Okay. Yeah. So if you were doing nothing but uphill work and you went outside to do two kilometer reps, 2K, <clears throat> like roughly six minutes of work hard, that'd be a tough ask of your body. Oh, big workout. So to do the inverse of that train only flat and then ask yourself to do six minute uphill reps. You just can't fake six minute uphill reps because you fatigue in places that you're not using on the flat. So knowing how you feel. Yep. That's doom and gloom sitting from the outside. is like, nah, that's, that's mm -hmm. three to four weeks of specific uphill work. And then you're going to have those little ancillary pieces all bulletproofed. And then your fitness is going to shine through. Well, good thing I'm not in Kelowna or West Virginia this weekend because we got a race to commentate Bracken. Oh, that's right. I, it keeps slipping my mind. I keep thinking it's next weekend. It's not. Well, you better show up when it's time to record. I mean, it's, it's my, in my goodness. Phone. Okay. If it's on my calendar, as long as I do the correct time zone, which I screwed up again yesterday, Dory and Gary Kirshner mm. out on the East Coast, I was late for our meeting. They texted me and said, Everything okay? We're just waiting for the invite. And I just typed back in all caps time zones. Unacceptable. You are not, it's not like your specialty, we will call it. Whatever the opposite of a specialty is, that's what you and time zones have. Sometimes. Oh, big sneeze. Oh, I just fought off that sneeze. Uh, that's tough to do. That took a year off your life. Um, should Whatever we... that specialty is, I've got that. So <laughs> should we... Gary, Dory, I'm sorry for yesterday. <clears throat> okay. It was great seeing you in our abbreviated format. We're probably going to begin rambling if we don't jump into this episode, Bracken. So, uh, anyways, we are... Rambling? Well, it is telling episode to begin with, but we are okay. We are commentating the Spartan North American champs in Kelowna. Um, we have our very own race brain, Jack Bauer out on course now, not to, 
not to address the talent of our rabbits, but to address the talent of our rabbits, we don't quite have the running acumen as far as guys with cameras um, out there, not the number of, let's call it, fast men or women who carry a camera. So it's going to be very interesting on our behalf to see who can stay with the leaders and how long we're able yes. to stay with the athletes. So we have a, we're like kind of holding our breath a little to see how this turns out. So I figure we're going to earn our paycheck by filling time on Saturday, potentially. What do you think? I have an inkling that might be true. And I have a, I have a simple solution to this. Yeah. Pay the man, get rich Ryan out there. Dude, rich Ryan, bring the four some together. Rich Ryan would pull through for us. We're missing one member of race brain on the, on the, the show yeah you know he can climb you know he can force himself to run downhill if he has to and we know he can darn sure run flat so give that man a camera and let him run the entire time you hear that spartan ocr report whoever whoever the gods may be get yeah. a camera but anyways that might be something we run into but i'm looking forward forward to that yes. um why don't we? Why don't you introduce today's uh, episode? Uh, you had the idea, and it was one that we wanted to chat out a little longer format. So that's why it's a Friday Friday episode. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of ultra stuff. We've been doing a lot of nuts and bolts. We've been getting a little technical on our our weekend long runs, and that's supposed to be reserved for Training Tuesdays. But we've just had a slew of guests that have great technical advice to offer, as well as the mental game. You know, you can't talk to Miguel and uh, Justin Hamilton about ultras and not address the mental side, which they do fantastically. But mm-hmm. we end up getting lost in the weeds a lot. And the weeds of the ultra are where the ultras run. You know, you need to spend time in the weeds there. But we're going to relax a little bit. This is going to be a little bit more just pure entertainment and storytelling, which is our regrets as runners. Now, a long time ago, we did our biggest mistakes as athletes are the things that we wish we learned from and you can learn from it. And this is less of that. This is more, what do we regret? If we had to look back, let's say we're sitting on the porch in our rocking chairs, like you and I are going to be watching the sun come up over the lake one morning Mm. and just telling old stories about, you know what I wish I could have done better. Or, you know what I, what race I'd like to have back. Or you remember that time I chose the wrong pack for that race. This is that episode. Wow. So just one failure after another guys, You know, the only reason we're any good at what we do is because we've messed up a real lot. We made a lot of bad decisions and we've been able to work with a lot of athletes who have also made poor decisions at times. And then we all get to learn together. And we're very human, aren't we? (laughs) We are very (laughs) human. Yep. Very human. Yep. Sure. All right. Well, um, I know this is your ship. You came very prepared today. It's the first episode that I can think of with Bracken that we've done me and him where he has like a bullet points, bullet pointed, like you got, I don't know what you, what you want to call it, like flashcards on your phone. I have notes written down. Yeah, notes, that's what they're called. You got notes, and that makes me feel a little underprepared, but um, I think we'll we'll do just fine. So you want to kick this thing off a little bit? Well, I, I want to give you a little bit of input here. Do you want to go by category or timeline? Start at the beginning of our running career and work up to now, the things we regret along the way. I think category makes sense. I mean, both could okay. make sense, but I like I category. I timeline. Jesus, criminy. Let's go with category. Well, category can help me at my simple brain compartmentalize okay. and not miss anything along the way. So we're going to start right away mm-hmm. with ego. Because if there's anything that the running public stands for, we begin and we end with our own <laughs> hyperinflated egos. <laughs> I said uh-huh yeah yes. Listen, you 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 cut your teeth as a reality tv star 
The only reason and I got anywhere is because I didn't have one of those, but continue. That's what an egomaniac would say. There's a difference. <laughs> Just start. <laughs> All right. So let's start uh, races we would love to take <clears throat> back. Our biggest regrets of races. If we could just have that race back. And it doesn't matter how trivial the race is. I'm going to have some trivial races on here. Mm-hmm. But if you could take a race back. I have one, two, three, four, five, at least six written down. What races would you take back and do over? You don't get to change your fitness for it. You don't get to change your uh, like gear you chose. We'll talk about those later. But just the race itself that you could have a redo and have a totally mm. different result. Um, my very first race ever. I wish I could take back and do it differently because it kept me away from racing for another five years after because I had such a bad experience. I, uh, I know this story, uh-huh. and faithful listeners know this story. Uh-huh. Tell it again. Just just remind us. Listen, if you're one of my athletes, you're probably – I've had this conversation with a, a half a dozen this week about doink, doink, don't go in <laughs> – doink, doink hurt your groin. <laughs> you got it. Don't go in over your head in Kelowna. This is a long first climb. Like Enjoy the race for 20 to 30 minutes before it inevitably you have to sink your teeth into it, and you're going to run your best race this way. If you go too hot, it's going to be a recipe for disaster. And I shoved this down a couple of people's throats this week, and it's because I've learned this lesson really hard, especially early in my career. And the first was my mother built this up in my brain, the Hershey track meet. I was in fourth grade, fourth grade, came to Green Bay, Wisconsin. I chose to run the 800 meters. And uh, I think they just took the winner from each race and you moved on to like the state championship. And then if you went beyond that, you had an all expenses paid trip to Hershey, Pennsylvania for the national kids track meet. And I, for some reason, thought this was great. My father was an idol of mine as a runner. And I thought I was going to go there and, and, uh, you know, be champion of the world because I'm my dad's kid. Right. I got it in me just like dad. I didn't train. I was a kid playing all the time. Anyways, I ran that 800 meters like a 200 meter sprint. Um, I barely finished. I had the lead amongst everybody up to eighth grade. They ran us all at once, which is a mistake until that last lap. And then, uh, whatever is just faster than a walk yet. You're at about 240 beats a minute. That's what I was doing. That last straightaway is the most embarrassing moment of my life up to that point. And I did not go back and run until eighth grade because I was so afraid of that happening again. And if I could go back and take little Kirk, if I could be Kirk's dad, which I didn't have this guidance at the time. I would have given myself different advice because that ruined me for years. I didn't want to join track because of it. So that's the first one I would take back. And the lesson there, folks, is don't be a hero early on. Any racing this weekend? Don't be a hero early on. It's probably not going to end well. That's all I'm going to say. And that's it. That's my first one. Comes to I mind. like it. What about yours? I'm actually steering the opposite direction of you because I didn't include races that I learned from. Oh, because yeah. I can't justify – now, yours – you learn other people will learn from it but you had to keep it in there because it actually negatively impacted the rest of your running i didn't learn from it for years later but yeah yeah so i'm doing only things i didn't learn anything from like it wasn't a learning experience race races i just screwed up and i'd love to redo it so you just need to get this off your chest be like i could have been so good if this didn't happen is that what you're trying to do here we're starting with ego today all right continue with what you know best (laughs) okay (laughs) And I'm going to start with, uh, let's see, Spartan Race Mexico. 
I went down and did one of their big series, uh, not big series, but bigger prize money stadium races. It was at um, their national soccer venue in Mexico City or just outside of it. And it's up over 7,000 feet, crazy amounts of smog and pollution. I was living in Colorado Springs at the time, just under 7,000 feet. And I was nauseous on my warm up at this mm-hmm. race from the pollution. So you this, combine the altitude with the pollution, it was miserable. This is the race we touched on with Miguel Medina on Friday, this episode, right? You talked about this race briefly with him. You had to sit in the stadium chairs over and over. Oh, and no, over. no, that was that was Hawaii. Oh, okay. Never mind. That was Hawaii. Miguel was not at this one, actually. Okay. Uh, anyway, Angel Quintero was down there, and he, was such, he and Christian Scherf were such a great help. They got me registered and checked in because they said, just come down, we'll take care of it. I have broken Spanish. People down there are so, so fast when they're speaking. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult for me, and I had limited time to hear. Anyway, it was a tough experience all in all, but the thing that I regret about it that I would do over is just what I know now. I'm at the start line. I'm trying to ask in my Spanish how many burpees. Oh, no, sorry. How many reps for obstacles because at stadium races you have to do box jumps you have to Mm -hmm. do med ball slams different things that heavy jump ropes for reps and we had started with 20 to 25 at stadium races and eventually they're down to their all 15 reps now but at the time you were sometimes seeing 30 sometimes 25 sometimes 20 we're in a different country i was asking the volunteer thought i was asking about burpee penalties and so they told me trente which i'm pretty sure i heard that and that's 30 so i'm like all right this really helps me. They had the Junior Olympic Development Program there, their 3K steeplechasers out for the race. And these kids were all like 17 to 20 years old and fast. And they're doing this as cross-training. So I'm like, 30 reps, that's really, really helpful. Well, I start getting blown away on these stations, and it becomes very obvious that everyone around me is cheating. And finally, <laughs> I get to, uh, I think it was like weighted step-ups we had to do. We had to pick up water jugs and do box step-ups which is kind of a cool obstacle for a functional fitness competition. And the volunteers like, you're done, you're done, you're done. And I'm like, oh, English speaker, fantastic. How many am I supposed to do that? Like, just 15. I'm like, oh, I've been doing 30 reps at every station. Idiot. So I gave away a ton of time there. It was just nonsense throughout the race. I worked myself back into it. They started hitting obstacles that they struggled with. We had some unique obstacles. Anyway, it came down to four of us with about 1,000 meters to go. And I went for it and caught back up, got to the lead, got stuck on a tricky hercoist. I think I just had a tight pulley, went through the rig a hair slower. Now it's just on hell and I. We come off the rig, turn around a corner, and the finish line is like 15 meters ahead of us. And I was on his shoulder when we came around the corner just gathering my breath i know we're heading out towards outside we're gonna see the finish line and i'm gonna outkick them and instead we had 15 meters and i lost by one second and it cost me like two or three thousand dollars that's when you were making your living as an athlete i was and for me two or three thousand dollars at that point was gonna go a long way Mm -hmm. i still made a couple thousand and that was nice but anyway i probably did 60 total extra reps than everyone else that race between 45 and 60 extra reps and i didn't know where the finish line was so in my mind if i could have just redid that race i would have been thousands of dollars uh further into the uh into the black and i would have 
not had a stadium loss internationally on my record, which at the time I thought of myself as the stadium guy, and it sucked to go into someone's backyard and get spanked. That does suck. That's a race I'd love to do over. So what can people learn from this? Let's help them out here. I I guess have someone that, I mean, double check the rules always. Yeah. And then if you're in a foreign country, get someone next to you to do the question asking for you. Don't rely on your broken. And also find your Hanson. If you remember that in high school, my high school coach, 600 meters to go, they yelled Hanson, which meant like, it's Mm -hmm. time to, it's time to sell out, put out. Maybe just studying the course maps, you knew. If, if those stadium maps are kind of bizarre, though. Yeah, yeah. There was no – and I don't even think they did course maps of stadiums back then. And just blind leading the blind, huh? I walked across – I finished that one and just had this – this like, in my mind, I was just throwing my hands in the air like, here I am. I've got three to 400 meters of kick just waiting in my legs. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to you. Like, oh, can I just please have a refresh button? Even just let me redo the last 30 seconds of this race. Yeah, uh, it was a it was a very heartbreaking loss. Sorry to hear that, Bracken. It's okay. Um, I guess uh, I think everybody has this one, and this may come as a surprise because this is a a race lost in the abyss as far as my career goes. If you look at the bullet or the highlights, but timeline, but um, Spartan Race Palmerton in twenty seventeen. That was my first year doing the U.S. National Series, and you were commentating that race with Magida, I believe, yeah. or Amelia. I think it was Magida. I think I think it was just Magida that day. Yep, and I was having myself a race. I wasn't on camera. I bought my Nordic Track Incline Trainer that winter. I lived on it, and this was my first chance to use this climbing fitness that I realized I needed for this sport. So I was really emotionally invested in the climbing and I was, you know, came just came off a stadium race against you, Kent, Killian, where I had a good showing. I was in the game. Um just won Chicago back to back against some good competition. I was riding pretty high, I ran fifteen forty in a local five K, all in the lead up. And in Palmerton, we got done with the double sandbag, which didn't go great, but I still found myself in about I don't know, eighth place or so, even after getting passed. And they put us on monkey bars up there. And we bombed downhill. And I missed the arrow, which nobody, I don't think, I don't know how much this was talked about. And I bombed straight down the black diamond next to the same hill that we carry that sandbag up until I run into uh, like Killian and Woods going the opposite way. And they're like, somebody said, you're, I think you're off course. And I look back up and the conga line of people are taking a right into the woods 400 meters back up that hill. So I hooked it back up there. I dragged, uh, I dragged, who did I drag with me? Somebody else Glenn. followed me. Well, well, yeah, and Glenn ended up taking fourth, but he just cut right back on course, I believe. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. But anyways, I went all the way back up and got out in like 20-something place and worked my way back up to 15th and had a kick home again with VJ Jones and jesse mcchesney and nobody knew that and we were closing on the bear and kent even in those final those final minutes they were just a minute or so ahead and i thought that would have been my breakout race i would have i would have come out and then i took 10th at west virginia my next national series race so it did come to fruition but in palmerton was actually a better day for me and nobody mm-hmm. it would have been a day that would have stood out in the the timeline of kirk dewin spartan career that never was because i missed a turn and 
gained a little extra elevation that nobody else had to. So that was one. And no, and then, and then, you know, that is what it is, but I had my time. But anyways, if I could take that one back, if somebody could have just directed me the right way there, that would have been a different day for Kirk to win. So I feel, feel like I've unfinished business on that Palmerton course because of that exact moment, actually. That's it. That's the other one that jumps out at me. That's tough. Going off course is a tough one. I, I had that in, uh, in in Minnesota against you and mine wasn't nearly as catastrophic but it was it's really difficult to uh, run longer than anyone else at a high level and, and beat them you went it's from really second to four to fifth and that's enough in a short course yeah. yeah so that's a tough one but I actually don't have that on my redo list it's on my list somewhere but it's not in my top five I, I'll have a different type of miss on mine okay and that's a spear throw <laughs> I believe I have missed five spears in 11 years at Spartan Race. Maybe six because I missed one last year. Okay. And there was a time I was racing 15, 18 times a year. I just didn't miss my spear very often. And we got to the Spartan Cruise, Kirk, and everyone was there. I believe it was Hunter, John Yatsko, John Albin, Ryan Atkins, Isaiah, um, Macaulay was there. We had, what's Megita there? Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on everyone else too. It was basically everyone, it was like 15 of the top 20 guys in the world all went there because we all had comped uh, five-day or four-day cruises by Spartan. No one passed it up. I mean, Albin came over from <laughs> from the UK to do this because it was such a cool opportunity. And I was fit, Kirk. This was the prime of my Colorado training. And I hadn't yet gone all in on the mountains. I was still doing some stadium prep. And this was a 5 to 6K uh, island race. Mm. There was no real vert on the course. And there was swims in and out. And I had become a pretty strong swimmer by this point. And I was ready. And the race got out so hot. And within a quarter mile, we were jumping off a cliff into the water. And a, a group of us broke away. And up front, it was Atkins, Albin, Hunter, Isaiah. And then I was leading the chase group. And I closed down on the swim. We got out, and I closed down on the next uh, road run. And I caught up to Isaiah, who had been dropped by Albin, Atkins, and uh, hunter and we entered a single track jungle and for like a half mile i couldn't pass isaiah it was so tight in there there was no getting around it was a jungle like a goat path through the jungle even you if you tried off and get around you would have got the elbow I'd probably although this was this was lean on fast isaiah okay. this was before he got massive and and got into uh crossfit this was uh this was a smaller isaiah but we got out of there, and I hit the jets. And over the course of about another six to seven hundred meters, I made up probably an eighty to hundred meter gap on Albin Atkins Hunter, and Yatsko came with me, and we rolled up over the A-frame down the backside, and all got to the spear throw within a second of each other. Now. I don't care how hard they were or weren't working. It was the first time in my life I'd run Ryan or John down. Mm -hmm. I was feeling pretty darn good about it. And we got to the spear throw, and I ran to the first available one, and it was a downhill throw. And instead of moving over, it's flatter. 
I was I was pulling back and Albin missed and Hunter missed and I threw and I skimmed the very top of it. It just like airplaned off the top and took off and I dropped down to burpees. And that was my win right there. Now mm-hmm. it was a it was like I don't know five or seven thousand for first, which again I was making my living by it at a time. But even more, it would have been all the scalps and the notoriety. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah hit it. Oh no, John did hit it, and Isaiah hit it, and John took off and went off course, and Isaiah and Kent went off course, and then Isaiah turned and just cut right across onto the course, and John ran back like four hundred <laughs> meters and back. On course. Anyway, Isaiah got the win. Oh my goodness! I would I had dropped him already. I just make my spear and I win the race. And, and I blew it. And I was, it was one of those where you're more than you're like two thirds of the way through the race. And I was starting to start clicking, mm-hmm. you know, starting to feel good running. Usually, you know, <clears throat> you know what you've done and you know what you have left and it's not more than what you started with. And I felt like, oh, this altitude is really starting to like, I'm at sea level now. I'm starting to feel good. So that race was just one of those days where, you know, you're on one, your running's clicking, you're getting stronger as you go. And I missed I missed the spear for one of six times in over a decade. And it just happened to be in that moment. And it ate at me for like a year, Kirk. The woulda, coulda, shouldas, man. That's all it's going to be about with regrets with racing. And it was a standalone race. Like no one cared. No one prepped for this race. But the fact that if you can take out multiple world champions in one race, Mm -hmm. that's a huge feather in your cap. And someone else got that feather that I thought, I mean, we all, we all came to the spear thinking, we're the one who's going to win it today. There are five of us all thinking that, but that was, you know, Mount Rushmore of OCR sitting around me, mm-hmm. and I, I, I choked. That was your chance. Sorry to hear that. Mm. Sounds like you haven't gotten over it yet. No, that I mean that would have probably been the biggest win of my of my life, mm-hmm. name wise. The people around me. You don't well, get a chance to beat Ryan or John or Hunter very often. No. Well, I've been racing for seven years and I've missed six spears. Three were in year one. I missed three out of five (laughs) and two were this year. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And then in between for those other five years of racing was one miss. And sometimes that just is how, how it goes, man. Just how it goes. I missed my first one and my second to last one. Hmm. So a four in between in 10 years. You want to talk about taking something back, San Luis Obispo this year. If I could take that miss mm-hmm. back, we would have been in a different situation. But um, All right, do we want to move on from race re- race regrets? No, I have, a, I have a pretty big race regret, Kirk. Are people going to learn something from this? I don't care. It's a story. <laughs> story hour. Okay. I shat the bed in my first nationals meet in college. We've talked about this, but I was surrounded by upperclassmen who were all good at what they do, and I was a sophomore running my first year of track. And I let off the DMR at nationals and handed off in dead last. DFL is what they call that. DFL. Why? Dead effing last. Yep. What happened? Because I ran like an absolute noob. Mm. First of all, and I've talked about this before, but to set the stage, at nationals, it's pretty much a closed facility. And this is indoor nationals, so it's cold it's it's uh icy and snowy outside so the only where the only place to warm up was indoors and all we had was one hallway and a double wide basketball court for all of the nationals competitors to warm up in so you're basically doing a line drill just back and forth running baseline to baseline trying to get warmed up for the biggest track race of your life 
to date, at least for me. And not only that, every single person around you is a monster and looks like every single move they're making is effortless and explosive. Like they were born to do this thing. And you're sitting there hyperventilating Mm -hmm. as a sophomore running his first year of collegiate track. And then what is it? 15 minutes before the race, they bring you into the corral, which is essentially just stuck there. Dark room where everyone has to take your warm-up gear off, stash it in your team team bins, put your spikes on, have your jersey on, put your bibs on, the the leadoff leg gets the baton, and you're stuck in there. And this is like a 20-by-20 room with nine teams. And it's a privilege to be in this room at the National Meet in College, but let me just describe this room a little more clearly for you. It is, the rooms I've been in are hung with like a black thick curtain, Yes. And it's like a rectangular room that's about 12 to 15 feet wide and maybe 20 to 25 feet long. And they have lunchroom, like picnic chairs facing each other on both sides of this room. So it's basically a room lined with chairs all facing in the middle. Like if you were to sit in a circle, except this is a rectangle. And all the athletes who are so nervous and corralled up and ready to race are forced to sit there, stripped of their warmups, in their spikes, ready to go and just staring at each other. It's dead quiet. There's nothing going on, and all you have is you and your competitors and your thoughts, and you're sitting there in full race gear in this tiny little room with no distraction. It is one of the most bizarre energies I've ever felt Mm -hmm. in my entire life. Intense energies, but it is super bizarre. You're four feet away from your competition in this cooped-up room. You're getting cold. You mean there for 15 minutes. It's actually one of the most intense feelings I think I've ever been through with athletics. So anyways, continue. That's my experience with the holding room. So in the Winter Olympics, when they show the swimmers in that staging area where they all just wear their like overcoats and they sit down on the chairs and they just sit there Mm -hmm. and there's always someone like intense glaring and then someone just smiling. They have headphones on and they're watching the other races on TV. It's that except that there is no TV. There's no overcoats. There's no headphones and the chairs are facing each other. It's bizarre. But yes, exactly. Now... On a relay, there's four times the amount of people. Mm-hmm. So the same nine, te- nine individual teams, but there's three additional people for every lane. And so there is no sitting. Now you're all clumped shoulder to shoulder because the room's not very big. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just the opposite of every track race you've ever run, which is you keep your warm-ups on until the very last second. You're moving around until the very last second. Now you're 15 minutes out from having to run as hard as you've ever run, and you're standing still or sitting down. So I was in that. That's the type of room where the powerhouse minds sit there and just take everyone's energy. Mm. And I was sitting there with everyone siphoning off my energy. That's what it <laughs> felt like. Like I'd look at someone and be like, oh, he's a monster. I look to the right. Oh, he's going to beat me. It was terrible. I just so we remember not being able to wait to get out of that room every, I mean, it was oh. twice, but it was like, get me out of this room right now. It was so horrific. Yeah. <laughs> They call just the lead out lead off leg out and you run out onto the track and you get one stride. You get to run out onto the tracks. So you do it as fast as you can to get your stride out. And then you turn and get one back to the start line. And while you're doing that, they walk everyone else out in single file and they get in their positions. So I come out, I want to milk it. I'm, I've been sitting still. I've never done that in my life. And so I'm trying to like get extra jogging in and just milk the moment thinking I'm going to game the system here. I get called over the PA system to the line. 
I'm the underclassman. I'm like, oh, shoot, oh, shoot, oh, shoot, oh, shoot. What if I missed the start? <laughs> mm-hmm. Run up. They have you in little lanes. They're called alleys where you put more than one person in a lane. And I run up. I get started there. And I'm in the wrong alley. And they call me out over the PA system. UW-Whitewater. Move down to Alley 4. I'm like, oh, well, my goodness. Whitewater's an easy school to get into. Nobody should have been surprised. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like everything that could distract me from the task at hand, I allowed to happen. And by the time the gun went off, I had jittered away all my like pre-race energy, and I was just a shell of myself, and I was instantly boxed in at the back of the field. And every home, this is 200-meter tracks indoor, so you only have 50 meters on the straightaway to pass. Every straightaway, I tried to get out and surge up, and I would get elbowed out and pushed out, and I would settle back in. And I did that for every single lap until the final lap, at which point I had no energy left, and I just stayed in last place. And I handed off in last, and our group of upperclassmen ran us back into third or fourth place, and I got All-American status. And I brought nothing to the table other than I did not drop the baton. (laughs) What'd you run in your 1200, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, like 307. You probably had run 303 or something, 302 before, something like that. I we I jogged kind of qualified like a 304. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ran 301 my senior year, I think. Mm, that's quick. I ran, I did the exact opposite. I made up for it my senior year. I ran great, handed off right behind the leader, and we took last place. So, <laughs> like, life balanced, but that I cost – my upperclassman, we had a set. We had Brian Butzler as our anchor who would run 4.0, like six, six yeah. 404 in a mile Stud, yeah. that year. Uh, I cost them a national championship t- chance mm. because no- I absolutely just pooped all over the bed. Nothing worse than letting other people down that are relying no. on you, which is usually what leads to good performances in relay races. Actually, you'll see personal best run in relays. You'll see mm. big performances. Um, you, you rarely see the, the shit all over the bed typically in a relay but sorry to hear that sounds like you cleaned it up nicely i learned yep see there you go that's the only race on here that i learned from Mm. but i feel so terribly for the other three members of the team none of them won a national title but did butzler i'm sure he did he might have won national sure 5k or something yeah he's a monster yep he's one of those d3 guys that could have been d1 we were part of the same recruiting class at oshkosh um, mm. but he left after the first year, so we never saw his, his true potential. And then he came back to school, like what, 10 years later, not 10, yeah, six, he, eight he years later in the yeah. army. Yeah. In fact, he and I have chatted. He's, we, we almost had him on the podcast last year and then schedules didn't align. And so he's still, he, he'll be a guest at some point. Yeah. I've always liked him. Um, yeah. I mean, we could, t- I could talk about, we could talk about racing for uh, a day if we had to. I mean, there's so many races I would take back, but I think for, I think for the sake of our listeners, yeah, let's move to the next, the next segment of, uh, regrets. Let's do uh gear choices. We screwed up. Okay. I'm cool with that. Or do you want to go first? Um, well, you know, I don't think I've made as many mistakes as you have in this regard. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest with you, I, I will say that with, um, gear mistakes um i've made one gigantic one which is so irrelevant to what we do now um but i wore road flats in a polar bear plunge 5k around lake calhoun here in minnesota 
and we got a dusting of the drizzly, dewy snow. Mm. I wore the Adidas Cubato, which looked like a piece of paper on the bottom. There's no tread. And I didn't think that maybe running in a shoe with more tread in these conditions would have made sense. And I had just run 16.11 in the 5K. This is like 2000 and I don't know, 10. And I ran 18.50. And I ran in place like you would see in a movie, so to speak. And my hamstrings were so sore I could barely walk for days because of the slip on the push-off. And I went back and thought, you idiot. You needed to wear a light shoe and you knew there was snow on the ground. But I had not trail run at that point. I did not know what I was really getting into. And I had trail shoes, a pair. Um, And I just like, I undershoed is what happened because I thought it was so important to my speed and I lost. And I remember the guy who beat me posted on his Instagram that he beat the bachelor. And that really bothered me. I beat that idiot from the bat, and I really got under my skin. But anyways, and if you've heard me talk on this podcast, I always say more is more like more shoe is better. And I stand by it because I believe like there's one air side of uh, that you can air on. And that is the side of too little shoe over too much. And so that was my early lesson. And uh, if I got to take that back, I mean, heck, I could have run 16.10. Been a good day for me. But no, 18.50, running in place. It was the worst race of my life. Oh, my God, was it terrible. And I felt so – I had a new girlfriend at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go crush these fools in this polar bear plunge 5K. She came out. We did the polar bear plunge afterwards, of course. I embarrassed myself. And I was trying not to be excusey. But I was like, my my shoes. Trust me, I think I would have won – the shoes and she's like oh i'm sure your shoes and i was like you don't get it anyways so you see how that'd be traumatizing bracken it is really yeah, terrible you know this isn't on my list but i had a an experience like that colorado springs out there thanksgiving what would it have been somewhere around 2015 someone who lives there can tell me the year but we got freezing rain overnight on thanksgiving eve and there is a turkey trot put on by the ymca and I had signed up to do it, and I was darn sure going to do it. And I went out to this thing. You know how Colorado is. It snows, and 40 minutes later, it's 70 degrees out, and the snow is melted. Yeah. We're like, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be fine. They delayed the race by like 40 minutes so that everything could melt. Never melted. Finally, like, all right, we're just going to do this thing. So we all get started. And I'm just going to say that the race was won in like 1724 by a guy who had run 410 in the mile two weeks <laughs> prior indoor. Oh, God. This is how slippery it was. I have never run on conditions this slippery. I was in the Nike Lunar Racers, which have foam bottoms with a few tactical, smooth rubber pieces on them. We would be running, and suddenly someone's foot would be up at their chest level. Ugh. And everyone would go, whoa, whoa. And we go around turns, windmilling our arms. And... With like a thousand meters to go, we crested the hill and did like a 3% downhill to the finish. And none of us could stride out because it was so slippery. Mm-hmm. And we start hearing clack, 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 clack. And this woman comes just eating us up running by in yak tracks. <laughs> she was the only one who brought yak tracks. And she was like a like a 1755k runner and ran 1815 that day and took second or third overall that's amazing and she just gobbled us all up down this final hill it was the most helpless i've probably ever felt running it was terrifying because at any point your feet were just going to go but you're trying to run 5k effort good on her she 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 did it she showed up prepared but that's actually not a gear 
I didn't have yak tracks at the time. I didn't have anything better. So I don't have a regret. But my first regret with shoes was my freshman year at Campbell University. We had a sponsorship through ASICS, and we all just chose the most expensive shoe was the ASICS Gel Cayano at the time. Mm -hmm. Man, what a clunky shoe that was back in the day. Clunky, but it had medial posting, which was designed for um, pronation and I supinate. Mm -hmm. And it just pushed me over, and I developed IT band syndrome. And for nine months, I was plagued by injuries, and I eventually lost my freshman track year and left running to go play baseball because I thought I'll never run pain-free again. And it wasn't until a year and a half later I realized it was the shoe. Well, of course the most expensive shoe is the best shoe for you, Bracken. Everybody knows that. Well, it was karma, Kirk, because <laughs> what we understood is if what you had— That was sarcasm, folks. By the way, okay, let me just clarify. Good clarification. To get your new pair of shoe, you just had to bring your blown out pair of shoe and they'd give you a new one. So we understood you just keep an old pair of shoes around and you can go get a new one whenever you want. And then we'd go to finish line, hand in our brand new shoes, and we would get $179 in return. Mm -hmm. We were poor college kids who were all on like two-thirds scholarships. And yeah, we were stealing from the university in hindsight or from ASICs. Not bad. That's or from okay. finish line. I'm not entirely sure. I forgive but you. Statute probably all three. has to be gone. A lot of people <laughs> you were probably all. harming there, yeah. So this is that's cosmic justice. I got $179 every three weeks, and I got IT band syndrome for my troubles. Mm-hmm. All right, I got one. That was a bad gear choice. That was a terrible gear I ran gear in the choice. Asics uh, Cumulus all summer leading up to that. Way better. And then I thought, ooh, I could get a more expensive shoe. Yeah, so the lesson here, folks, because it's expensive doesn't mean it's good or better for you. I mean, it could be a great shoe, don't get me wrong for you, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the, – the more you spend doesn't mean you're going to miraculously feel better in this shoe, without question. In fact, it could harm mm -hmm. you in some cases. So that's good. good point outline. I'm going to take one back here, gear choice – um, which I know there's going to be contradicting schools, schools of thought on this, but, uh, I wish I could take this one back, uh, very, very much. So this is two nine, 2019 in Seattle, um, Spartan race. We had 39 or 41 degrees and raining. Mm. And everybody told me, Kirk, you know, running with your shirt off, you know, your clothes aren't going to soak up the water and you're going to stay warmer because those wet clothes are just going to cling to you. And da, da, da. Listen, I think all that's BS, and I'll tell you why. What people don't say is, yes, this wet shirt sticks to you and clings, keeps the water on, keeps you cold. Do you know how much body heat leaves your body when it is full of water? and it is cold out, and you have nothing there to soak it up and then create a buffer of warmth. I ran in 41 degrees with no shirt on, and yes, other guys did, but I can't. And guys like Ryan Kempson can't, who also went hypothermic that day. And I was having a good day until I wasn't. And my theory on this is even if it's a T-shirt, even if it's a moisture-wicking T-shirt, what happens, and this is my opinion because I've experimented with this, is that you put that shirt on, it's soaking wet, it's cold and rainy. Your body heat warms up that shirt, and it kind of, even though it's wet and it's vapping heat away from you, it's vapping heat slower than if you have nothing on, because then it's just exposed to the air and the wet. And so if I could have gone back, I wore my little shorty shorts and no shirt, and I was hypothermic, and I thought I wasn't even going to make the finish line. 
I was the only time I've been on course scared. Like, I might be in real trouble here. I could have put on my Patagonia Houdini jacket over no a bare skin, and I would have, I think I would have had a fantastic race. But for those freeze babies out there, like me, and I am, I'm always cold. I'm one of those guys. I know some of you listening to that. That whole shirt off technique don't work for people like me and you. That's for those freaks who don't get cold. I'm not one of them, and most people aren't. So if I go back to Seattle, I would have put on a dank shirt, and I would have wore, wore a shell, and I would have had a great race. And instead, I went out there and ran, froze my ass off, and wasn't even able to touch my potential, and that was very frustrating because I was fourth the year before in the rain wearing a mud gear shirt and long tights, and I stayed perfectly warm. Granted, it was it was a little warmer out, but not much. So point being is that lesson – I learned hard, and if I go back, that race would have been completely different. So uh, all those tough guys, and yes, it works for some people, but don't just go blindly for the first time, taking your shirt off in 40 degrees in rain because somebody said it made sense. Might make sense for them, didn't make sense for me. So I take that one back. That was a huge mistake. That cost me that entire race on a good day. It was hard seeing footage of you and uh, Kempson, Kempson in particular. Well, I was far enough. I slipped off the monkey bars. I couldn't feel my fingers. And I'm talking post-race, like finish line, Kempson being helped to medical. Like I went to my car, turned race. on the heat, and I didn't say one word to anybody. I barely made it to my car, yeah. Anyways, yeah, that was a tough one. So that's a, that was a mistake. Maybe somebody can learn from that. I will never go shirtless in cold weather and rain again, never. Listening to people's advice on cold or hot weather apparel is like listening to their advice on shoes. It's true. You have to understand that it's great up until the point where it might not work for you. Because I ran a race that was 34, 35 degrees and raining. And I probably I did it once in Illinois and once in uh, North Carolina in spring. And shirtless was my route. Tell my me this. My hands were an issue. But my body temperature was fine because I run hot. Tell me this. Now, if it would have been a beast distance or a, uh, I, I ran one sprint and one super. The super was harder than the sprint. Had it been any longer, I might have been in trouble, but it was all my hands. It was not my core. Hmm. Tell me this. Let's have a little discussion here. How does a wetsuit work? Tell me how a wetsuit works. A wetsuit traps a layer of water between the suit and your body, which you then warm up to a warmer temperature than the outside water. Correct. Your bot, a wetsuit is designed, well, it helps you float too. It's got some foam. There's but, some buoyancy. But a wetsuit actually holds the water close to your body so your body heat can warm up that water and create a layer of warmth around you. Why would you wear a wet, why would you do, why would you want to hold water close to your body to keep you warmer if you're already wet? Well, that's the same concept in my eyes that a shirt can do for you or even tights that get wet. It holds on and it just creates a little layer of warmth because your body heat heats up the water close to your skin. Wetsuits are designed for cold water and that's exactly what they do. So why why can't a shirt do that for you out on a rainy course? Yeah, Maybe somebody can prove me wrong scientifically, but that's my theory at this point. And, and, and you're right. And my point is it worked for me, but even now going forward, I would just have a shell on. Yeah. I can always take the shell off. Dude, the shell's the way to go. You can shove that in your pocket. I don't have. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Okay. So I have two big learning courses for gear, and they are Tahoe and Killington. And I've made two big mistakes at each of them. So in Killington, it is hydration-based. And in Tahoe, it is gear-based. So my first year in Killington, everything worked great. Both of these are uh, long mountain courses. 
typically yeah, in the fall and cold conditions. Yeah. Yep. So my my second year in Killington, I believe it was my second yeah second year. I thought I was going to win the world championship there. Turned out I wasn't prepared, and we can get to that later when I get to my training <laughs> regrets. But I switched to a and I switched like three weeks out before the race to a hydration pack with a bladder in the back rather than having bottles. It was just sitting better on descents. I wanted to carry more water because the rumor was that it was going to be longer and rougher that year. And I didn't, and we didn't know if we could count on water stations. So I switched to a black, uh, a black hydration pack with a bladder in it. Uh, no port to see through or anything like that. You just can't see anything back there. And I went by feel. And I thought I was running out of water. And I was saving water and saving water. And when I got done... Out of my, I want to say 48 ounces I started with, I think I dumped 32 out. It's a lot of water to carry on your back. And what I realized was I had no clue how much water I was taking in on each sip. And I thought I was about to run out of water, and I had maybe right around 30 ounces left over. And I had all my gels mixed into my water so I could drink my nutrition. It's a rookie move, Bracken. i got to be honest with you. Yeah, it was my first time racing in one of those, and mm. and I struggled in that race because I didn't hit my minimum requirements of calories. Or I think the race was won in like three fifty that year, three forty. It was a long race, and to take in like sixteen to twenty ounces of water and maybe two gels with that, that's not enough, especially not for me. So what I learned there is that no matter what your system of hydration you're using is. You must have a way of tracking how much you're taking in. Mm -hmm. And if you can't see your hydration, if you're taking it through a tube, then what you have to do ahead of time is do sip tests where you take a sip and then you spit it out and see how much volume you're, you're taking in your mouth each time. Or you go out and do a run by feel and then come back and find out how much you took. And I didn't do those things. I only tested bounce. I didn't test actually how much am I taking with every pull out of this straw? And it really cost me. Where'd you finish that day? I DNF'd. Hmm. That was the year that Miguel was talking about where I quit. Like 11 miles in. Brutal. I was cramping like crazy. You were underhydrated. You were underfueled. And underprepared. And underprepared. Was that the next year you went back and nailed it? I didn't nail it. But I got my hydration okay. I took eighth that year. Oh, was it the, the championship? What year did you take third? The prior year. Oh, the where prior I used year. bottles. Mm. Um, so I learned from it a little bit. But then two years later, I decided enough of this. I'm going to nail this thing, and I brought a full bottle in my Nathan Vapor Car waist belt with t Tailwind already mixed in. Actually, it was in Duralite at the time I was using Sustainalite. Mm -hmm. I had that mixed in, and then I had two spare 17-ounce flasks with my scoop of Sustainalite already in it and the side pockets of my belt. And so I'd go through one at the next aid station, spend five seconds, dump water into there, and get back to work so I never had to carry weight on me. And you know what happened, Kirk? Hmm. We jumped into that lake. We swam out there, climbed a rope, jumped off. The Sustainalite turned into concrete and clumped into the nozzle of my bottle. And I went and I filled up my next bottle. I shook it up and nothing would come out of the bottle. Mm, that stuff's pretty and I didn't have any too. fuel for the rest of the race. Oh, my goodness. So twice at Killington I learned. And after that, what do I do? I twist the bottle. 
I just twist it upon itself and then water can't get in and it's fine. But uh, I learned bad in Killington at big races uh, that you have to test out your hydration system like in every type of scenario. I got a couple of athletes really hemming and hoeing over what to use for both Tahoe Ultras coming up, a few World Toughest Mudder, uh, some this weekend in Kelowna or West Virginia, and they're sort of like waffling over their fueling and water strategy, pack or no pack. If I do wear, what do I wear? And what you just said is just a good reminder. Like if you have not done that in training, like did you jump in the water in training with that setup? Like if you haven't tested everything out with your setup, as in race conditions are going to demand, don't try anything new because things like that could happen and something that dumb can ruin your race. And so it's like a really, that's actually a really good lesson to just like practice exactly as you are going to race. And if you don't, don't roll the dice on something like that because no. something silly can happen. So that's interesting, Bracken. Cement. I don't think it was Endurly though because I don't think that was around in the Killington days. Uh, this was 2019 or 2018. Oh, when you went back there. Raced Got it. And yeah, not that the world champ. soft last year. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. And then in Tahoe, I test, I ended up switching jackets and gloves race week. I ripped out my old gloves, and I got a brand-new pair. I used cutters instead of the Walmart brand I was used to. And they ripped on me on lap two. They they didn't take that uh, swinging torque the same way that the uh, the Wilson gloves did. And it, it led – it was I DNF'd because I DNF'd, but it led to what – You fell off an ape hanger, I think, right? Ape then, hanger. Yeah. Yep, fully submerged under the water. Still had my gear on because I wasn't planning on still um, on going in the water, so I hadn't taken any of my stuff off. It was just a bad decision, but I hadn't tested that glove. And the first time through coming out of that swim, I found out that the jacket I'd switched to that week has a very small zipper. And with numb fingers, I could not get it to work. And all it would have taken is taking any sort of ring or 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 piece of metal or even a zip tie and attaching it to the zipper. And now I have got a big long pole that I can grab with mm. numb fingers, you know, a nice little zip tie at the end of that. I can just slam my, my thumb through there and pull it up. And I didn't do that. And it, I couldn't get my, my jacket zipped. That's frustrating. Yeah. So yeah. again, I am like a gear person and I made choices on race week because of it didn't, my, my logic made sense to me at the time but I didn't test it. I learned a lesson this spring at the Zumbro Trail 17 miler. It was 27 degrees at the start. I like my Bolt Energy Chews. It's a product by ProBar. And a half hour in, I went to put my first one in my mouth, and it was hard as a rock. It had frozen. My body heat wasn't enough to warm it up. I put a, like, put a, put a gummy bear in the freezer, see how that works. It took me eight minutes to get down... I think like 50 calories a chew because I had to stuff them in my cheeks mm. for a minute before it would even kind of stupid. So I took in way less than I had planned on and also like just got frustrated. Little things like that, man. Yeah. Energy chews, full solid. Stupid. And I tested my jacket by going out for a 10 degree run and I took it on and off two or three times. No problem. What I didn't do is numb my hands and try to get that jacket on and off. Mm -hmm. I didn't put my hands in ice water for two minutes and then get out and try to put it on, you know? You got to test race conditions. Yeah, you do. I'm trying to think of some other gear. I mean, it's like every gear thing comes back to shoes because it's your one contact point with the earth, right? And there's uh, mm -hmm. I was dealing with a foot issue at the time, but in Big Bear, uh, 
Beast in 2019, I was having a foot issue and I had I ran I raced in the ultra lone peaks. So my feet would not bump the inside of my shoe. I ended up taking that's actually I got taken I don't remember what the heck happened. So many injuries now, but anyways, um ninth that day? Mhm. And I lost all ability to descend. I was 6 the year before feeling pretty bulletproof and working hard and I was ninth that day. Um, and I lost the biggest arrow in my quiver, which was my descending, because I I could not descend in that shoe because my foot was all over the place. And I don't know how you guys running in ultras do it on those steep trails with that big, wide toe box. No matter how locked, and I locked, I did the lockdown lace system. I did everything to hold that shoe in place, and it wasn't the same. I don't know how people do it in those ultras on those steep 30% downhill grades. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I, bet you I don't have maybe that. Maybe a Tahoe you could get away with, maybe. Yeah. But not a big bear black double black diamond descents. I don't see it. Some people can. I can't. Nope. Ruined my. I mean, it ruined my race, but it severely hampered my downhill ability. I, mm-hmm. would, I would take that back. I would. I would just probably have sucked it up and crammed my shoe into the appropriate foot for the terrain, and then dealt with the aftermath later. To be honest, but <laughs> that might not have worked out either. So. Well, my last one, Kirk, is. A lesson every racer learns, which is I chose a shoe for speed rather than for the distance. And we've talked about this on here, so I'm going to keep it very short. But I ran the Texas Beast uh, Glen Rose, which is a 13-mile OCR race on relatively firm terrain. And I chose the shoes that I was going to feel the fastest with because I was going to try to race against Hobie and Cody in their prime. And I wanted my wheels that day, Kirk. And you know how fast I felt for the first five or six miles? Fast as ever. So fast. So fast. And you know what happened when my form started to break apart? Yeah, you went to it went it went south in a second. Yeah, I turned into a rumbling, bumbling mess, just slapping the ground with these minimalist, aggressive racing shoes on. And what if I would have lost five seconds per mile for the first six miles? And even that might be debatable. In a heavier shoe. I would shoe. have been 30 seconds per mile faster for the last six. Oh, I was so beat up by the time I got to the end. So beat up. Now, I'm not knocking any of these shoe companies, okay, folks? However, the vast majority of people I see out on courses, especially the trails, are wearing a shoe that is meant for a 150 or under pound runner. 170 max you see people in their innovates and their vjs and it's a 220 pound dude stacked to the brim with muscle that shoe is not serving you in any capacity these shoes are meant to be on the fleeting feet of the light for the most part and somebody who's 170 80 pounds or more shouldn't be putting those shoes on look what happened to bracken he was lean mean in 160 and he put on too little of a shoe and still paid the That's price. Probably 170. Okay, 170 paid the price. Like everybody sees the pros wearing these light mm-hmm. racing shoes and think that's going to be their ticket. And it might be for the first mile for you. And then you're going to bleed time from all the impact you're taking because you have no support. And I know that's not what I should be saying because I do wear the lighter shoes and I do believe in them in certain instances and I will race in them. But for a lot of you listening, it's all it's all directed at the wrong person. It's not directed at you. So anyways, that's a really good lesson because, again, I said, what, half hour ago, more is more. And I will, I would rather, if you said trainer or minimal shoe, even for like a 5K or a 10K on the trails, I'd be like, give me the big shoe. I know it's going to work because I'm going to feel good the second half. So anyways, I could rant on that all day, by the way, but um, 
I've been there before. Wearing too little shoe, and once it goes, it goes, and then your speed is no good if you can't access it. Right. And we've said this line before, but I will repeat it, and it was driven into my brain several times in several races and workouts. When you're looking at a race, you do not choose the shoe that you will feel the fastest in for mile one. You choose the shoe that will allow you to run your fastest on the final mile. Whatever shoe is going to support your best stride on your last mile is the shoe you start in. That's the only way to look at races that are long at all. Track, yeah, you can probably get away with a lot of stuff. But I would even argue that a non-elite 5K or 10K on the track should have more shoe than less shoe. Because yep. it's just too long to slam into the ground. Eventually, you're not efficient anymore. So what shoe is going to make me finish fast, not feel really light and fast to start? I think any race over an hour... For sure, you err on the side of like, yeah, what shoe is going to make me feel fast at the yeah. finish? And of course, you put two different shoes on and they're three ounces apart. One's three ounces lighter than the other. And of course, you're going to go do your strides and feel super fast and flashy in that shoe. And it's going to seem like the obvious choice. I feel so mm-hmm. fast in this shoe where it couldn't be the more wrong choice. Yeah. yeah. There's only one caveat to that. And that is sloppy, soft conditions. Yeah. Yeah. The sloppier and the softer it gets the more it is about choose the grip rather than the cushion because the ground gives you more cushion and you're not slamming into the earth the same way in those conditions. So if you're in a a sloppy mountain race and it's going to be six hours long, you still probably choose the grip. If it's guaranteed to be sloppy. Yeah. If it's guaranteed to be sloppy, if it's sloppy and soft, you can get away with less, but that's the only caveat. On that day, would I take a VJ IROC to do a four-hour mountain race if it was guaranteed to be sloppy, muddy mess? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't race for 60 minutes in the IROC on hard ground. Yeah, and that's where like companies like VJ and Innovate shine. And yes. we often do race on terrible condition terrain, and then there's that yep. exception, which I wasn't addressing. You're very correct. Yep. But like the difference between West Virginia and Tahoe in shoe choice for me would be extreme. Mm-hmm. I could wear just about anything in West Virginia. But in Tahoe, I need something underneath me, even though it's the same distance. Yep, I'm the same exact way. All right, Kirk. I want to talk about all the other pieces now. Bad run decisions, training, anything that's sport or sport adjacent. Your regrets as a runner. Oh, I can probably think of about three dozen runs where I contemplated bringing toilet paper and a little baggie as I stepped out the door but didn't. It's like, I don't, not going to need it today, or I don't, well, I needed it. So that one, if there's any doubt, just just put it in there. About three dozen of those, Bracken. Yeah, I ever I tell you the story about, with me. you did? I ever tell you the story about how I made it to the bathroom, the door was locked? No. Oh, man, it was a bad one. I uh, This is in college, so it was a long time ago, and it was a morning run, and I didn't always wake up and roll out of bed and run, but I had to for a job I had that summer, and uh rolled out of bed ran hadn't used the restroom when i got out of bed that's pre-coffee days now i understand that's you know that's helpful in the morning anyways ran got four miles in i was start it was everything was closed it was too early right in the day it was like 5 a.m 5 15 and i was like oh there's a park up here and there's a bathroom and i know it's there so like i'm just gonna pinch the penny and i was running with you know everything squeezed tight i had like a mile to get there and it was the most miserable mile of my entire life and i wasn't sure i was gonna make it And I'm like sweating, not because I'm working hard at this point, but because I'm clenching every muscle in my body to the point of pain. And I'm like, oh my God, there's the bathroom. And I like, now I'm walking with like my 
hand shoved up my ass crack, right? So I got to get there. You know how that goes. No, I've never done that. Uh, I've walked. I've squeezed my cheeks together. But oh, I think like karate chop. The flow. Like, yeah, like karate <laughs> chop up. Like on the outside of my shorts, of course, but it was like to that point where like, I mean, you know, this is going on for seven, eight minutes of like dire need. And I get there and I'm like, oh, thank God. I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it. And I pull on the door handle and it's locked. And I had already been pretty committed to what was needing to happen. And so I just dropped trowel and left it right there. I held onto the door handle of the bathroom and just right there in front of the, uh, right there in front of the door. And I, I just go back and think like, what picture did that paint to the maintenance man when he went and unlocked that door an hour later? Like, you know, writing was on the sidewalk there, and it was uh, that was the most memorable uh, run bathroom situation I can ever recall. Holding onto the actual handle of a bathroom door to brace myself as I. Mm. Used it. Anyways, if I had toilet paper with me that day, it wouldn't have been a problem. That's I felt real bad. About, I felt real bad about that. I really did. That was a that ate at me for for a while. This wasn't intended to be a poop question, but I'll answer your poop with my most regrettable poop. Okay. And I may have even said this on here, but I went on a run over Christmas. We had an unseasonably warm Christmas. There was no snow on the ground. No snow whatsoever. And I went on a six or seven mile run and I got past the last gas station stop before home and it hit me and I went very quickly into run walk, just squeezing my cheeks together. The contraction would pass and I would hammer it to get as far as I could before the next contraction hit. You think that's why they call it a fart lick session? I think so, Kirk. Do you think that's where that came from? I just think I, think I had to just crack the code. National treasured this thing. <laughs> we really did. Okay, continue. Nick Cage would be proud. He would. Nick, chime in, please. Well, I finally realize this isn't happening. There's there's going to be no Christmas miracle here. I'm not making it home. But it's like 9 at night. It's dark. It's winter time, so the sun's been long down. And we have an abandoned railway that runs about... It's probably only about 600 meters from my house, but mm. 600 meters might as well have been 600 miles. You know, I, you hear about people uh, in the desert who get lost and they die of dehydration a you know, hundred meters from a water mm-hmm. source and they didn't have a choice. Same, same thing. They know what I Listen, went through. Listen, I get it. <laughs> they know. I get it. <laughs> yeah. So I scramble down the side of this little ravine that leads down to the tracks. Like you, I grab hold of something like the last tree exposed root. And I get my, I'm fighting. I had two XU compression shorts on and those are tight. And I fight to get them down to my knees. And I'm I'm like, I'm not even going to be able to get them to my ankles. It's, I just sit there and I am basically performing an exorcism from my rear end. (laughs) What came out of me was some unholy abomination of everything. It felt like I'd eaten. For the last fifteen or twenty years, <laughs> I did. I didn't so, ask for you to tell this story. It matters for what comes next. Oh God! It is so horrific, and I'm sitting there, and I take my shoe off, and I pull my sock off, mm-hmm. and it's not going to cut it. So I put my shoe, my foot back into like halfway into my shoe, pop the other shoe off, take that sock. I'm not sure if that is even cut, cutting it. It's not going to. Of course, it's not going to cut it. Yeah. And I hear a noise really really close to me and i look to the left and i strain my eyes through the dark 
and there's a homeless man <laughs> sleeping on the ground like four feet from what I'm doing. <laughs> and he starts to get up, and I start to panic. Because you don't want to get charged by someone in the middle of the night who maybe maybe is mentally unstable, maybe deserves to be because you just defecated on their doorstep. Or maybe had He's toilet confused. paper to offer. I have compression shorts basically hog-tying my legs together. And I, I'm at like a 45-degree angle hanging off of a tree branch or mm-hmm. a tree root. And I have to perform like this about face and hop out of there trying. My shoes are untied. They're not even on. And hop out of there, try to run away from this man who thinks I'm like attacking him, trying to get my 2XU shorts back up. And I felt so terrible that I did that right, right next to his bed. <laughs> so bad. I wanted to go back and be like, hey, man. Can I give you a bed for the night? <laughs> I guess you don't deserve that. If it but really I didn't is, know you were there. <laughs> if it was as bad as you say it was, he probably wasn't there anymore, Bracken. I I can't even imagine what his thoughts were. Honest, okay, honest. Before we move on, shoot me straight for real. Measure it out. How far from your butthole to this man's face? Best case scenario, six feet. So, okay, so you you mean that? I mean, six feet and not far, Bracken. Let's let's say that I'm misremembering and it's double that. Like, <laughs> Twelve feet doesn't make it any better. You're right. <laughs> it's, not better. it's pitch black. I, imagine being woken up by the most horrific alarm clock you've ever heard in the middle of the night, and someone's just uh, mudsliding right next to your your pillow. So terrible. I, maybe you changed that. Maybe that guy was like, I really need to reevaluate my life choices. And that was the moment that got him out the door and walking in somewhere, putting in his first application in a while because he's like, I've hit rock bottom and this was my sign. I thought I was at rock bottom, but I was wrong. This is it. Somebody literally shat on my feet. I need to get Thank a job. You, whoever that was who clearly needed more fiber in their diet. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. So yeah, terrible. that's good. All right, that's a really good lesson learned there. Carry toilet paper on you, folks. This whole thing could have been prevented. Point being, when in doubt, toilet paper it out. This that's is it. akin to this, but the 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 diarrhea is not the point of the story. I was in <clears throat> probably the usually best the diarrhea steals the show in, in any story in which it's brought up. We don't even have to really mention it. Okay, it'll just be you'll understand yeah. that it's part of this. Heading into the first year of the Tahoe. Um, venue being the world championship site, I was at the peak of my fitness and I'd been at altitude the longest. And we went to Costa Rica as a family for 11 days leading into this, like a week before Tahoe. And it was, I looked at it as this is going to be a real easy way to, uh, to taper. And I, was going to only have bottled water the entire time. Mm-hmm. And I broke away from that on like day four. And on day seven, I got as sick as I have ever felt in my life. And I think I lost 12 to 14 pounds between that time and the time I took the starting line in Tahoe. Not good. And that was Colorado time. So I was down to 166, I think. Naturally, that's the lightest I've ever been racing since my freshman year of college which means I was down in the 150s. 
uh, mid to low 150s at the start line. For an altitude race, I was dehydrated. I had whatever else goes along with pooping away 14 pounds in a week. Mm -hmm. And I had a horrendous showing. 50, 50 something or something weren't you i think i took 52nd overall 48th male okay which means i would have just missed that female podium but i walk i walk jogged the last two and a half miles i was just like i couldn't stop shivering yeah. shaking I, I entered the water and i never recovered uh it was just really terrible and the entire time i was thinking like this would all have been solved by bottled water I just, it was a terrible decision before a world championship, the biggest race of my life to date. And I was like, eh, let's roll the dice down here in Costa Rica. Well, it, gets, it wears thin after a while having to go out of your way to get bottled water. And what gets most people is the ice cubes in their drinks when they yeah. go out and travel and they don't think about that. And then they're in the bathroom for the next month and a half. And the, the second worst part is I was on the athlete panel the day before the race evening before and i answered questions and i was like one of the targeted people to watch and i took 50 second yeah, that's embarrassing and very embarrassing no yep. sorry to hear that <laughs> i for i mean it's okay i don't it doesn't change how i feel about you good <laughs> yeah yep. this uh this loves unconditional bracken i i would say if we're just generalizing now right whatever comes mm -hmm. to mind yep um I guess we got to make this somewhat serious here because uh, I would say that any time where I have questioned my fitness and felt like I needed to squeeze in that little bit extra work mm. has zero out of however many times worked out for me. Every time I feel like I need to squeeze it in or get that last big one in because that's going to be the one that's going to get me right where I need to be, I show up and I lay an egg. Even when I'm not as conditioned as I would like to be or when I have really good fitness and I can trust all the weeks and months and years of training, as long as I just say, hey, is in the barn. Let's do your taper workouts. Let's take it easy this week. Nothing's going to change by race day. Just trust everything you've done up to this point generally works out very well. When I got to squeeze in that last two hour long run, when I got to squeeze in a couple extra reps, when I got to overload two weeks out because that's what it's going to take. Wrong. Most of my races in which I've laid eggs is because I actually, even if I'm not running super high mileage, I've done something to try to change things in the last two weeks. And at that point it's too late. And so trusting the process, allowing whatever happens on race day to be what it is, like you've already made your grave, Hopefully it's a good one, but if it's not, you're going to lie in it regardless. And so um, I'm thinking back to like when I was struggling with plantar fasciitis, when I had some coming back from injury and I had a race coming up and that wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be. Uh, that never works out. Two-week window, 10 days at most, you are basically just accepting your future in that race instead of trying to force something in to make that race go better because you want to know what it does? It makes that race go worse. And so that would be one lesson I've learned a few times. I will never make that mistake again. Yeah, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. You'd rather be a little undertrained than tipping over. Well, it's a weird thing because when you're trying to get back into fitness, let's say after something or a race, and now suddenly you're, I hate the word, as I said in our training Tuesday, motivated in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, word is disciplined, folks. And so you're not in great shape and then you overload the system in a body that can't handle it really. And then you show up on race day. It's even worse. It's like even worse. Like you just overloaded a system that wasn't ready for it and it hasn't adapted yeah. yet. So now you're just screwed. You're, you're a week too early. 
And so it, or you're a week behind. So anyways, it's just, it's kind of a double-edged sword when you don't feel like you have the fitness and then you try to cram it in right before a race. It's like, you don't have the foundation for it to lay on and it just makes, it makes it even worse. You'd be better off not running that last week and a half, honestly, yeah. sometimes. So that's just two cents. I've learned that enough where I won't make that mistake again. I made a big training error at the very beginning of my OCR career, and it has really been a guiding light since. But my first year at World Championships in 2011, I got beat because I couldn't handle the physicality of OCR. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hobie would have won regardless, and Josiah probably would have beat me either way. But I missed out on that third-place position at the World Championships. And I thought, you know, thousands of dollars, fame and glory. Fame was probably arguable. But in the sport at that time, I missed out on third place at Worlds, which was like a big deal to me. So I spent the entire, I spent like, I got away from the sport. That's when I hurt my knee. I didn't run for months. And then I did a 26-week, I think, training block leading into the 2012 Spartan World Championships in Killington. And I'd never raced in the mountains. And I knew that the physicality of the races was going to make or break me. And I lived on our local ski hills and I lived doing these grindy, nasty OCR workouts. Built up volume, but all my long runs were done on a ski hill. Just grindy, nasty stuff. Slow and grindy and always carrying something or descending hard with a weight vest. Like doing things that maybe weren't even super smart. But I was getting ready for the physicality of the race. And I went out there and I executed perfectly and I took third place at World Championships in that beast in the ultra that year and it was a small sport but it didn't matter it was the it, i did exactly what i set out to do and i left knowing i was the best of everyone else and i'm only going to get better mm -hmm. and hobie and cody beat me by i want to say seven minutes and nine minutes respectively on a long course, course. Of 13 miles to me it was a i was 259 and they were like 250 hmm. like that's that's in range i can make that up but i cannot make that up without getting faster and Hobie smoked me in Texas, and Cody smoked me in two or three races afterwards, South Carolina, Texas, and uh, maybe California. And I just knew they were so much faster, and I decided if I just am the same athlete but a minute faster in a 5K when I come back, I have a real chance at winning world championships here, and that's what I went to do. You lost I sight of what made you good. Ton. Yes, I did a ton of 10K work, a ton of 5K work. I started skipping ski hill workouts because I'd think – I will never move this slow on course. I just need to be faster at these things. I did way more hill sprint sessions like track and cross country style. And I got to world championships in 2013 and I DNF'd. I cramped. I was not prepared for the test. And I looked back and it was like this giant neon sign like, you idiot. How often do you see that you neon sign? <laughs> What'd you say? How often do you see that neon sign? I at least monthly, oh, I'm like but two, not that two or three big. times a day. Yeah, <laughs> that that big of a sign you don't want to see too many times because mm -hmm. I I wasted a whole year. It wasn't a waste. I ran a fast road mile. I ran 420 in a road mile that year. I ran a 5k PR. Like I was I was doing good things, but I wasn't preparing for the test. And I thought I have attained this skill level, locked in. Now let's do some other stuff rather than do everything I did but include more fast work. Mm -hmm. I replaced training stimulus with other training stimulus, and I paid a horrific price on race day for it. You know who may learn something from hearing that? Everyone. Me. Oh, you. Not that I have Killington on the calendar, not that I have any mountain races on the calendar, but 
there's an obvious reason why where we started this episode and I said that my climb fitness is, it's not bad, don't get me wrong, but it's not where it would need to be if I'm running these mountain mm-hmm. races. Case in point, sure, I'm, I'm the bells and whistles are flashing hard over here on the flat stuff, but on the mountains I'd probably end up in the same way over a long race. So it's a good, good reminder. Lisa and I were sitting in our hotel room in this little lodge in Vermont the day before. And she's like, Aunt, tell me honest, what are you thinking? Lisa, I think I'm going to win a world championship tomorrow. Oh, gosh. Like, I am so much faster than I was last year. I am almost a minute faster in a 5K. That is 20 seconds per mile. Extrapolate that over 13 miles. That's minutes of time. Plus, I'm way better on carries and grips, I think. And I'm more experienced, and I'm going to run the tactically perfect race. I really think I'm going to win a world championship. And I walked off the course at mile 11, already like 25 minutes down from the lead. It was so embarrassing. If it comes to races like that, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to mean it with vindication 100%, your 5K time means nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. And I'm somebody who's getting off on this stuff right now myself personally. So if anybody needs to hear this, it's me. Your 5K time means jack shit. So Interesting. Now, if you can climb and descend and carry, now your 5K time matters again. But it doesn't matter until you can do all the other things. It's like the final piece that, yeah, it would be nice to be faster. But that speed doesn't matter. Precisely. One second as soon as you crack. And you're going to crack real early on a mountain race if you don't have mountain legs. And I didn't have mountain legs anymore. Dang. It was so bad, Kirk. I looked her in the eye and said, I think I'm going to win a world title. And you know what's interesting? Well, that's embarrassing. Then you came back to the room, and there was that big sign. The neon sign was in that hotel room, that mountain cabin. We have a picture of me sitting on a log on the side of the course with my chin in my hands and her arms around me looking at me like a combination of worried and really concerned and sad. And I just have this like thousand-yard stare in my eyes like – it was the one Miguel talked about, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the, there's no one home. It was what just happened. Like, what went wrong here? And it was so obvious what went wrong, but that's what we, that's what most people hit at some point in their training is we remove pieces and replace rather than combine them correctly. Yeah. So true. Yeah. That might make a good uh, episode cover that photo or a poop emoji. Like one of the two are going to be a great fit for this Probably. one. I, uh, you know, when I think back now, now that we're talking this out and kind of bringing this conversation full circle to how it started, um, I didn't do a single flat workout leading into Tahoe championships in 2019 for five weeks. Everything was on, on real terrain going up or downhill or on my Nordic track. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know if I could run 1630 in the 5k right now. I felt slow, but damn it, were my chassis ready to take damage and just create power for a long time. And my 5k time way slower than it would be today i would run circles around myself yet i got to the top of the mountain in ninth and that was really good for me at the time and ended up 11th which again in that field was really good for me at the time you're Mm -hmm. playing with johnny luna lima the the year he won big bear you're having a good race anyways that was the slowest i felt on flat terrain but i was teaching to the test so it's just very interesting that's just like a lot of the same lesson being learned in different ways but i remember now that we talk it out how slow i had felt 
My turnover was gone, but my ability to grind and four-wheel drive was mm. fantastic. And that's what all these races are. Every single one of yeah. these races is just put her in four low and go. How long can you do that for? Yep. Yeah, true, baby. You want to hear my least important regret of my running career? Not starting this podcast sooner? I didn't register for the race correctly that I set my 5K PR in. There was an option to include a timing chip on your bib and an option not to include it. And I didn't click the box to include a timing chip. And so I don't have actual evidence of my 5K PR. I have my watch. I have a picture of my watch. That counts in my eyes. But that could be anything. So I don't have a uh, a true timing result for my 5K PR. Didn't want to spend the extra buck 50, whatever it probably was. I don't was. remember. Part of me thinks it was I didn't know how fit I was for a 5K. And part of me thinks I signed up late and was like, uh, I just like rushed through it. I don't know what it, mm-hmm. I don't remember anymore, but I do not have an actual link to a result. Mm-hmm. So my true 5K provable is still 1639. <laughs> you want to know? I haven't run a GPS based other than that, or, or a timing chip. So my 1542 isn't provable on the internet. Maybe people need to hear this. This is one of my non regrets, which I know this is the opposite of what this episode is about, but it just is coming to mind and telling me I need to say it. I'm going to say it. I had about, I don't know, eight, 10 lost years of competition fitness. I didn't, I was a collegiate runner, got sick. Da, 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 didn't race for a long time, didn't even care or think about it for a decade. But you know what I did do is, and this is one of like, the, I'm the happiest for it like now, and I'm so glad I did, is I just put my shoes on or showed up pretty regularly for a decade without any really big um, motivating goal in mind. There was nothing I had that excited me to train for other than I developed the habit and knew it was good for me and it made me feel better at the time. I wasn't inspired by anything. I wasn't aiming towards anything, but I just kept showing up and not doing amazing things, just showing up and running three miles every other day or showing up and hitting the weight room and showing up. And if I look back to like, I'm not even close to the world's fastest runner now and I never will be. However, it set me up to do a lot of pretty cool things in my late 30s. And all of it was because I didn't just throw my hands in the air. I was uninspired performance-wise, but I just kept the habit. I knew it was good for me, and I enjoyed how it made me feel. And then one day, something sparked my interest and ignited me, and I chose to train with purpose for the first time in a decade. And it would have been a very, very, very different game if I had just felt lost. And because I felt lost with any true fitness goals, I didn't do anything. That would have I would not probably be sitting here talking right now if that were the case. And so I find that... Of all of the things you could regret, I don't regret losing sight when I still had no, my eyes on no prize. And that's not what this episode's about, but I just felt like I had to say that for anybody who's feeling lost or something, given our last episode on Tuesday. But we can go back I to feel. Fault you for saying that. We can go back to regrets now. Oh, it's good. It's worth knowing. It's worth saying. Maybe yeah. that's the only piece someone takes out of this episode. <laughs> Maybe. I think it's carry toilet paper with them all the time, but trivial but i learned from it and maybe someone else can we talked about this a little bit maybe no one learns from this but sectional track meet in high school we decided to run the four by 800 meter uh and i would anchor it prior to trying to qualify for state in the mile and the two mile i did the same i did the exact same thing 
And that was kind of pushing it for me, but I had, I was sitting in a position to qualify in both. And, but we had three guys that had no individual path to state and we decided let's go after this thing. Mm. We've run this relay since we were freshmen. And so we did, and I got the handoff in third place and top three go to state in our sectional. And no, top two. Doesn't matter. It was two back when I was when I was back in my day. Two go to state, and I tried to run conservatively the first lap, but they were pushing hard, and then I ran for the win from three hundred meters out, and I pushed and I surged and I resurged and I kicked away from them, and I separated with about one hundred twenty to go, and I hammered all the way in so that we would get a good seed time at state, and about what would that be? 25, 30 minutes later, I was towing the line for the mile. What'd you guys run for a time? Do you remember? Uh, maybe 805, oh, 803. Nice. Good. 80s are good, yeah. And that was with the 207. Ooh. Probably our leadoff. So 35 minutes later, I cracked on lap three of the mile. Got left behind when the kicking started and took dead last. Just mm. jogged it in and scratched the two mile. I just ran the four by eight at state. And my regret isn't that we tried it. My regret is that I didn't run like a KG veteran. If you're trying to do that, you expend as little energy as possible and you qualify and live to fight another day. I should have jogged as long as I could and kicked with 10 meters to go Mm -hmm. and slipped into second place. And instead I wanted to make a statement and get a fast seed time. And we wanted to set our school record. And uh, I ran with ego rather than intelligence. And had I done that, I could have come back and snuck in in the mile as well or scratched the mile and run the two mile and qualified that. But I actually, I don't think you could do that. I think once you scratch one, you're done for the meet. I believe so. Yeah. That, that's how it is at college yep. level at least. Yep. Um, and I ran unintelligently and there's a massive difference between sprinting your last 300 meters and coasting and sprinting your last 20 meters. And I burned all my matches and they didn't replenish in time for the mile. And I'd worked for that mile all year long. That was the only race I was focused on for a year. Mm. So it was just really bad tactics. I knew what to do. I got in there and just, I thought, I'm not letting any of these guys beat me today. Instead of, go ahead and beat me. I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm gonna qualify. But you had the team on your back, and that, that's a, you put the team on your back, though. And that, you know, that does but mean something. But as a result, something. I never qualified for the state meet, individually, mm. ever. Never well, qualified for nationals, either. Well, so, I, I ran that, that same way. Shot. We ran 802 as I was the anchor, set the school record. And then an hour later, I still qualified in the 800 meters. So suck it, Bracken. But I didn't run that fast. I ran two flat to qualify, which I had run 158 flat and as a split in the, in the relay. So I did suck a little out of my legs, but uh, luckily our field wasn't probably as good as yours. So still 20 minutes extra, 25 doing that eight instead of the mile. In fact, I ran 200.00 on the head to the hundredth. Which was not ideal, but um, you I know had what? Run I run slower than four twenty nine that year, oh. and I think four thirty one qualified. That's brutal. And I ran four thirty six off the back of the pack. So my senior year, speaking of regrets, um, and I made up for this in my freshman year of college. But uh, opening meet of the year, I was seated in the slow heat at the Oshkosh Invitational because I hadn't raced yet that year. I went. And led from the start, ran my own race. That's what we, we figured I was outclassing everybody else. And I ran 431-0, all alone, one by 100 meters. 
I ended up winning the whole meet. Beat everybody in the fast heat. Took home the overall W out of the slow heat. That remained my PR for the entire season. Hmm. Because, and in hindsight, I was so overworked at every meet. Had to run three events, always saving something. I sat and kicked. I have 15 videos of me and my dad kept. Sit, kick the last 100, win. Sit, kick the last 100, win. And I never actualized my true potential because I was so worried about the next race, the next thing. I wish I could go back and say, Coach, can I just like go after this? Because I always either had to run the 800 or the 4x4. Four four or... And so I never saw my real potential in the mile because I sat and kicked. I never just ran my own race. Never, not once. Other than that one time, which was the first race indoors hmm. of the year when I had to run alone because nobody in my heat was as fast as I was. So I grabbed the situation by the balls. And um, Then I didn't find out what I was made of that year, in the mile anyways. In the 800, I'm happy with how I, I had raced. But um, I ran somebody else's race every single time except the one time I was forced to run my own. And I never I never ran faster than 431 in high school. I went on to run four. 13 or 411 the next year as a freshman in college, 413 as a freshman, I forget, as a freshman in college because I finally started running to my potential. But I guarantee I had 424 to 426 in me if I just went out and raced. But I didn't. I went out and raced and never ran to my potential. Anyways, I wish I could go back and have like a little bit of a better stat board from high school. I won a lot of races, but I was a big fish in a small pond. It meant very little. So, uh, on the back of saying you shouldn't go out too hard in races, which we talked about earlier, in this case, on the track, it's very different. And that cost me, I think, um, yeah. time times back then. I yeah. left probably five to seven great races in my first lap of a track race in college. All my PRs, all my run to <clears throat> second. I took second to fourth place several times at conference. Uh, at conference championships, they were all, I left them. I wouldn't get up in the fight too early and mm. I was always closing hard. And I always walked away from those races thinking, well, I left that one on the track. Okay. Biggest tactical mistake that you wish you could take back in, let's get out of college in adult Spartan or trail or OCR racing. What's the biggest tactical mistake to date? Where you actually shot yourself in the foot. Like Jakob Ingebrigtsen losing the 1,500 meters at Worlds. He lost that race three different ways on his own. He should have won it. He could have won it in any other way. And he chose multiple ways to, to shoot himself in the foot and lose that race, for example. Which one? Anything come to mind? Like the biggest tactical mistake you've ever made? The most impactful one I probably had was in Asheville at a Spartan Super. I was uh, I was very... Fit. This was part of my like two-year run where I was up near the top end. Not, I wasn't the top end, but I was competing with good individuals. I had some national series podiums, and this was a national series race. And uh, I was going back and forth with Ryan Atkins for the first probably six mile, eh, five, five six miles of the race. This was the race where he failed the the rope climb. Yep, and kept going. Yeah, and he got DQ'd, uh, I believe. He got DQ'd retroactively mm -hmm. after the finish line. Well, I was ahead of him. I passed him on that rope climb. And I left and was ahead of him, and he caught me on the next climb. And then I moved ahead, and he caught me on the bucket carry, and I latched on. And I thought, I've been racing him back and forth for several miles. If he could have gone faster, he would have by now. I'm going to break this man right here. This is, we were fighting for third place. 
and I surged on the next climb. And for the next like 10 minutes, I just laid it down and I did not drop him and I broke myself. Mm. And on the next sandbag carry, he moved past me and I never saw him again. And then I really broke and I was all alone. We were at the top of the mountain. We got an update that I had like a minute 40 on the next person behind me. So it's like, well, I have fourth place. That sucks, (laughs) but it's cool. And uh, at least I'll be on camera for a while because I was Mm -hmm. battling Ryan. Um, I leaked so much time. Angel Quintero caught me at the base of the descent. And for like a thousand meters to the finish, we hammered at each other. And I was so cracked, I failed the the Herkhoist. I was -hmm. starting to black out on the Herkhoist. And I put it down and did the world's slowest burpees and walked in in fifth place. I think Killian failed the Herkhoist that day too. That was the biceps win races day. Yep. And then Atkins got DQ'd and Angel took third place. <laughs> oh, thousand bucks instead on the podium. And I was like, oh my goodness. All I had to do was just run on Atkins. Just let him pull me through as long as possible. Then I don't break myself. He eventually beats me either way that day, but I was on a surge of podiums and that was going to be a really good race. And I just did a, I burned a crazy match for no reason. Like, well, who breaks Ryan? Six miles into it. You, in, no, in you didn't. But you race. cannot regret that. That's he grabbing a race by the balls mid-race, intra-race. That's something you can't regret. You cannot regret that. You didn't puss out. And that has no, been, I didn't. And that has been a theme that you're trying to fight here in later years. That be, makes me proud. I didn't. But it wasn't the smart time to do it. Yeah. It, I, I had reasons. I knew descents were coming up and that he was going to out-descend me, and I thought if I could get rid of this man, but the style I did, it broke me. I didn't have that move in me like I thought I did. But anyway, that was I single-handedly destroyed my race there and then missed out on a podium because of it. Now I'm reaching for straws here. But in 2019 at Seattle, new 2018 at Seattle, I took fourth place. VJ took his first podium in third place, like 30 seconds in front of me. Not the closest I've been to a podium time-wise. I think Chicago 2018, I was even closer. I had a good year. But anyways, what the untold story is, is I got to the Herkhoist in front of VJ. This is early in the race, everybody. Did the Herkhoist, set it down, started running, and somebody says, you just did the women's hoist. And I look back, and I did the women's hoist. They, I was like, I didn't even, so I went back, did the men's hoist, got it done, and then continued running. And I took fourth place by 30 seconds. And I've always wondered if that was where I missed my first up. I don't even know. Have I told you that? No. Middle of that race. Yeah, my tied for, I've had three fourth place finishes in U.S. National Series. So I've missed the podium by once. I've never been on a real, on a real National Series podium. But in that race, I just was so in the moment, I picked the woman's hoist. So anyways, I regret that in hindsight. Wish I had a little more race IQ at the moment. Maybe I wasn't so in the zone. You think that, I don't know, 30 seconds? uh, Probably not, but it might have put me closer in the game. It would have been close to 30 seconds, and it sapped you. Well, the women's hoist didn't take very long to get up, Bracken. There's a confessional. (laughs) (laughs) I know you got to roll here in a second, but this reminded me of a terrible tactical decision I made. All right, let's hear it. It's not regretful. Because I wouldn't have won the race either way. And I think I've told this story recently, maybe even. But I uh, I ran a one-mile road race, the Capital Mile, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. It's a big race. And I, I was in this training for Killington that year. I felt fit. A lot of 10K work, a lot of 5K work, which for me makes me fast. 
and I showed up for, to run this one mile race after roofing for a day and a half. It was like 90 some degrees. I remember this I story. Just yeah. Smoked on warm up. Anyway, I felt better every lap we did, and we finally get to a quarter mile to go, and uh, it's just me and two guys. And one guy starts to pull away a little bit, and I move up on his shoulder, and he's this tall, goofy, awkward stride kind of guy. And I thought, no one gets up to pace faster than I do. And there's a 90-degree turn around the end of the corner, and then just like 80 to 100 meters to the finish. So before we get to this turn, I'm going to blast up to stride, use everything I have, just all-out sprint for 40 meters, end him, turn the corner, just 100 meters to the end, it's over. And I did that. I went right. This guy's probably like 6'3", 6'4", and looked goofy. Mm -hmm. And I blast around this guy. Just all out. And I can change gears fast. Mm. And like four seconds later, he comes striding up next to me. And he doesn't look goofy anymore. (laughs) He just looks smooth now. And he looks at me with the most like, I'll never forget this look. He looked at me very quizzically, but like perplexed and slightly amused. And just kind of looked me up and down, gave me a little nod, and then just casually put 40 meters on me in the last 150 meters of this race. And I ran 420 that day Little on the roads. Little do you know you were a puppet the whole time. Yeah, well, I crossed the finish line and someone's like, man, I can't believe you tried to, to, to make a move on Luke. I'm like, I don't know who Luke is. Like, oh, that's Luke Rux. Turns out he had just finished his super senior year at UW Wisconsin, had run 157, 147 in the 800 and 357 oh in the mile <laughs> that year. <laughs> and here I am running at 420 pace next to him thinking, he looks awkward, I'm going to blast him. It turned out he looked awkward because he wasn't running fast. <laughs> he was jogging. We were running 23 seconds slower than what he had run a month earlier. And uh, it was just such a humbling, like, there are levels to this moment where I went from really cocky to like a little child who's li- who's like big brother looked down on me. He's like, huh, that was that's a, cute, that was an adorable little move. Uh, Good for you, sport. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you later, but let's make sure to laugh about this later together. Mm. It was just and he never said a word to me, he just smiled and nodded at me afterwards and then went off for like a 10 mile run at six minute pace to cool down. But I got a taste of sub pro level running there because 357 yeah. isn't even pro level anymore. But I got a taste of how good the top level really is because he uh, he yawned and woke up at 420 pace. <clears throat> I just poked the bear. We need to learn those lessons time to time, though. Uh, and there's nothing you could have learned there. You made the right move in the right tactical situation, knowing your strengths, and you just weren't good enough, Bracken. No. That's what it I comes down to. I was just inferior. I was an inferior model. You really were. I uh I don't feel for you. I think you I think you ran pretty quick. I think that turned out all right. I was happy. I don't regret it, but it was such such a shock when he came back up to me and just that look. I will die never having forgotten that look on his face like, huh. huh. That's different. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um all right. I guess we're going we're about there. I don't know if anybody got anything out of this, but uh hopefully Hopefully some some little nugget and you're like, God, that wasted two hours of my life or whatever this will end up being. But hey, I am uh I'm holding myself to this with this uh shirt order. We've gotten a few recommendations um as far as colors. Right now we are leaning towards our traditional running public yellow, a black option, maybe a green option. Uh and 
one TBD option, I think we still is, is up for grabs and we got to figure out what option that is going to be. My vote is some sort of camo pattern, like not like, like an old school camo, somehow making it work because I have my own biases with that, you know, sort of style, but stop me from making that mistake, folks. If you got strong feelings on it, what do you think Bracken? I think, I think we do limited edition drops, Kirk. And if they're bad, we move on. And if they're great, we move on anyway. If they're we bad, keep our we standard just standard yellow. Okay. And cycle through some some options each time. The bad just get turned into like twenty five cut off workout shirts that we have in our own closets. Yep. Yeah. All right. Do we have anything else to add? Hey, you guys. Um, not that this is race brain because you are listening to the running public, but uh, I think we had over twenty Patreon people sign up on day one. Now. 30 patreon uh members signing up and if you uh don't have a way to support us here on the running public because we don't offer one unless you want to train with us um you can go on and support us over on the race brain patreon that comes to bracken and i amongst uh rich jack and then uh our feller on the back end who helps us with uh our social stuff so um thank you for those floyd and floyd yep so thank you for those who hopped on patreon uh on that um, and again, if you want to support us here on the running public, uh, but don't want our training plans, uh, Patreon on race brain would be a great way to do that as well. So I don't know what else I have to add here, Bracken. Send us your regrets, <laughs> like a good self-deprecating DM from time to time. Send us your regrets. Listen, guys, actually, you're, I'm glad you said that because we have been rolling around with, uh, a poop story episode for, uh, in, since inception, I think Bracken. Like just an episode dedicated to running poop stories. And if you run as much as we do, you probably got a number of them. So if anything is worth sharing, we can keep your name out of it. Maybe if we get enough material back and we can, we can, we can put together one of those episodes for the people. Give them some good content. Yeah, some, some real good Pulitzer Prize type stuff yeah. if they gave Pulitzers to podcasts. Oh, am I still around? Yes, I am. All right, that's our cue. We're out of here. It's asking me if I'm still here, so let's sign off, sir. Well, I enjoyed Story Hour with you, Kirk. That was nice. That was a quick hour and 50, for me anyways. Could have gone five hours. Five. Five hours. All right, we're cutting ourselves off here. Thanks for listening, guys. (laughs) 